0: This is from Psalm 73, verse 1 through 17 and 27, 28. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They close themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply until i entered the sanctuary of god then i understood their final destiny to those who are far from you will perish you will destroy all who are unfaithful to you but as for me it is good to be near to god i have made the sovereign lord my refuge and i will tell of all i will tell of all your deeds this is god's word thanks be to god
1: Well, it was Grant Morrison who once said, we live in the stories we tell ourselves. Whether you are about to enter an interview, which is very intimidating, or preparing a pitch for work, or if your parents in the room, you're about to meet the other new parents at your child's school, even more intimidating, in my opinion. Chances are, you tell yourself a story. It's, it's the inner dialogue in your own mind and your heart when you're getting ready for the day, when you're preparing for the meeting. And in some cases, for many of us, it's it's a little pep talk, it's a positive one. That you say to yourself in the mirror or under your breath, you know, as you're on your way to work, you might say things like, I've got this. I'm secure. I'm valued. I've got everything I need. Wait until they see what I have to offer. (laughs) However, so that might be two of you in the room. However, there are many times we tell ourselves a very different story. You didn't get the job. Your idea at work was rejected. You were not invited to that social event, even by people at church. And the other parents at your child's school looked down on you. And chances are, in those cases, you tell yourself a different story. A more negative script you rehearse in your mind before you make the call, send the text, or the email. Like, if they really knew what was good for them, they would have taken my idea on board. If those people were really friends at that church, they wouldn't have left me out. If they were actually good parents, they would have been polite. I'm underestimated, I'm devalued, I am wounded. See, friends, these stories that we tell ourselves, they affect the choices that we make each and every day. And so if the story we tell ourselves is toxic, then our lives will be toxic. But if the story we tell ourselves is true and redemptive, then our lives will be true and redemptive. I say that because here in Psalm 73, it's one of my favorite psalms, by the way, and as we were reading it, you could probably see why, we are given a glimpse into the story that the psalmist was telling himself. But what I want you to notice, friends, is what begins as a toxic story turns into a redemptive story. So I want us to ask this morning, how did he get into that bad place? mentally, emotionally, and more importantly, what brought him out. How is this both a warning and an encouragement for every one of us? Well, this psalm is referred to as one of the wisdom psalms, psalms that that teach us life lessons, true self-awareness with a God focus. And it was not written by the famous King David. It was actually written by a man named Asaph. Asaph, in the ancient Israelite world, was in charge of the music for all of the public gatherings. He was the worship leader, if you will. He was appointed by the great King David. And so it begins exactly how you would expect in a church gathering like this morning. If you have your Bibles open, Psalm 73, verse one, he says, the Lord is good to Israel, to all those who are pure in heart. I imagine him with his microphone, with his musicians from ancient Nashville or whatever, and you know the people are there, and he's like, God is good. And everybody says, all the time, or amen, you know, whichever version of that you're familiar with. But surprisingly, in verse 2, he makes some pretty raw statements that you wouldn't really expect in this type of environment. In verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Can you imagine that in the public worship service? Like Tyler's like, hey, everyone, God is good. And you're like, all the time. And he's like, but not to me. You're like, oh, okay, where, where are we going? Reality SF this morning? <laughs> but hey, friends, let's be honest. We've all been there. We all show up to church, especially if you're a parent. It's like a military operation. I mean, oh, I got, I got three kids, and like over the years, I mean, there were times of desperation going to church, especially when we were living in London, just hard years. There are times where I'm like, I will pay you. Just please, get your shoes on. <laughs> I'll do anything. And then you show up to church and the leader's like, God is good. And you're like. <sighs> Maybe some of you find yourself there this morning. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. God is good. Joy of the Lord. But as for me. But as for me. It's not so great. Remember, these statements are made by someone in the congregation who actually knows all the right things to say. But he quickly realizes that it's not enough to have some good one-liners in church if they're not backed up with substance, especially when you face difficulties and disappointments in life, which he did. And so I want us to notice simply this morning that the story he tells himself is driven by a progression of questions. And these are important questions to note because it drives the story that we tell ourselves. And the first question he's asking is this, what about them? And in your mind, italicize the them. What about them? In fact, all of these first 12 verses in Psalm 73 are driven by the word they. Don't underline in the, the church Bibles, but if you have your own, you know, just notice in those first 12 verses they, they, they. What about them? And I love this because he asks out loud what we often think when we're comparing ourselves and comparing our lives with others. And in this case, He compares himself with the godless. And on the surface, it all looks unfair. Verse three, he says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why don't I have what they have? And why do they have it so easy? And I love this. Notice how specific he gets. Verses four and five. I heard some of you laugh when this was read earlier. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. And they are not plagued by human ills. See, Asaph was in a state of mind where he's like, I don't know if God's good to me, and then I'm doubting this, I'm struggling, life is not going well, and then I look at godless people who don't care or think about God at all, and they don't even deal with life's dramas. In fact, they're just super healthy, they get paid a lot, they don't get sick, and you ask them, you're like, hey, what's your self-care routine? They're like, oh, I just hate God and do whatever I want. And I'm just like shredded, and I like never get sick. And you're like, so good for you. (laughs) To make it worse, he notes, their behavior doesn't deserve it at all. They're wicked, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limit. I'm kind of a dramatic person, as Dave will testify, so you can see why I love Psalm 73. I'm like, oh, I'm with you, Asaph. I've been there. He's essentially saying, I'm not even creative enough to do the evil that they do. Their imaginations when it comes to evil have no end. And yet, they have more followers on Instagram than anyone else on the planet. Verse eight through 10, they scoff, they speak with malice, with arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. And notice verse 10, therefore people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. What he's saying is everybody loves them and they follow them. <laughs> They're like, they do all this evil, they do wickedness, they hate God, they practice injustice and everyone else in the public's like, you're so brave, the way you do wickedness and injustice, so brave. (laughs) He's like, this makes no sense. And to top it all off, they seem to get away with it all. Verse 11 to 12. They say, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? That is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. I want us to notice there's more here than just a lament of injustice and wickedness, which it is. And many of the Psalms lament these very things. But Psalm 73 is unique because it is very personal. What Asaph is wrestling with is the personal comparison and how it then colors the way that that they That he then looks upon his life. And so, what I'd like us to note this morning is that this story that he's telling himself, the what about them story, is a story driven by envy and comparison. He even uses the word envy. See, oftentimes the the story we tell ourselves is driven by envy, it is driven by comparison. And here's a few signs that you can know if if in your interior life, in the way that you're processing everything right now, whether it's with the the people around you in your neighborhood or the, the people at work, the friends or family, you know, you can identify when you're really being driven by this envy and comparison, when you're constantly speculating and exaggerating about the lives of other people. Let's expand that for a moment. I think it's important. Speculation and exaggeration. See, think about what Asaph just said. It is very unlikely that all of the wicked never have health problems. Right? It's like a little exaggerated. You have it so good, nothing bad ever happens to you. It's like, settle down, Asaph. (laughs) It's unlikely that the wicked escape all of these things. It's unlikely that every godless, wicked person gets rich or do violence or get away with it all the time. See, we often speculate about the lives of other people. And does does that go well for us? I read a story recently about a a woman who uh, had hip surgery from a the doctor, and she was scheduled to have a follow-up appointment just a few weeks after this big hip surgery. Her doctor was quite young, very successful in his career, but still kind of in the the younger years. And three weeks later, after her surgery, she shows up to to, uh, her appointment, and to her surprise, the the receptionist says, well, actually, the doctor's unable to see you for the follow-up procedure. The lady was shocked. Why? Why? She said, "Well, he's extended his vacation." And she was like, "Well, well, well. <laughs> Extend, of course, he extended his vacation." And so she went home and for the next few weeks she was imagining him out in like, you know, the tropics with like a boat, you know, and like like gold chains and alcohol and everything. And she's just building this story in her mind. And when she does get the call to make the follow-up appointment, she is ready to give this doctor a piece of her mind. She can't wait. She's like, oh, I'm just going to, oh, I can't even wait to make him feel guilty. So she shows up to her appointment ready. She's been rehearsing the story that she's been telling herself in her mind, and she sees her doctor, and her doctor's like, oh, I'm so sorry you know, that I had to delay your appointment. She's like, no problem. He's like, you see, I had to extend my vacation. And she said, oh, I know. He said, actually, it was a working vacation. I was in Bosnia, and I was building hospitals there. You know, it's surprising how little medical attention they have in that country. And she was all, Right. There was no yacht. You were literally building a hospital. Got it. Speculation. And exaggeration. See, just as fear, when we struggle with fear, it makes others appear more powerful and us weaker, envy distorts reality. Envy makes others appear happier and more successful than they really are. Now, these statements are clearly made about the wicked, but they reveal an attitude of the heart that can also affect the way that we view all others, even other people in the church, when we allow unhealthy comparison into our lives. This happens in the church all the time. Well, how come they have it so good? Like, they probably don't even fast as much as I do. This is ridiculous. Like, I tithe way more than them. And like, look at how well things are going. Not going great for me. One of my favorite uh, stories in the gospel account of John is about Peter. Peter. This is after the, the resurrected Jesus has just restored Peter and he's about to commission the disciples you know, into the world to, to preach the gospel. And Jesus has told Peter that he would serve his church by leading and enduring suffering. But instead of expressing gratitude for the gracious way in which he had been restored by Jesus, because we all know that Peter had denied Jesus, or even asking Jesus how he might be fruitful in his service, even though he would suffer, he immediately compares himself to the apostle John. I love this, like a little comedy moment. John 21, verse 21 and 22. When Peter saw him, that is John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that John remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. See this question, what about them? What about them, Lord? What's going on with with them? May we ask the Lord and be honest with ourselves and before him, if in any way we're entering into this, this next season, this fall season with that what about them story. How come they have it so good? How come everything seems to be so easy there? They're getting away with everything. Church, those are, those are dangerous places to be in when we allow that question to dominate how we're processing everything in our lives. We need to identify any area of our lives where we're just saying, what about them, what about them, what about them? See, the Psalms are like, the mirror for the soul? And how often have our own interior lives been dominated by that question? But secondly, I want you to notice it goes deeper. Because if we're gonna avoid this toxic trap, we need to get to the source because behind the what about them story is a deeper question. What about me? Right? Some of you are nodding around. What about them? What about them? And then it quickly turns to, what about me, Lord? What about me? And verse 13 to 14 gets to the heart of the matter and the source of the danger. Verse 13 and 14, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. <laughs> Is any, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but has anyone felt like this? <laughs> you like, yep, yeah, there you go. Thanks, brother. <laughs> yep. In vain I have kept myself pure. In vain I followed the way of Jesus, and look where it's gotten me in 2022. Nowhere. What about me? Let's be honest. There are certain moments where we're like, why am I following Jesus again? (laughs) Why am I doing this whole thing? Or why is it so hard when I do? Let's make no mistake. When we're in that place of mind, the what about me story is actually driven by self-pity and self-righteousness. Oh, we've been there. It could be different circumstances. While everyone is out there, you know, just kind of being immoral, you know, here I am, just I've stayed pure, all in vain. All in vain. Or maybe you're involved in, you know, running your, your business or, or at work and the way in which you're managing yourself. You're like, man, all my coworkers, they're always like cutting corners, you know, and all this, and, and yet they're getting richer. Like, in vain have I kept my integrity You didn't get the pay raise, but somebody else did, even even though you know they might be a little shady. And you're like, in vain have I been a good worker. It's all in vain. And it seems like it gets harder and harder. Okay, just an honest parent moment. This this happens all the time. I remember a couple years back, there was this, this, this woman who came up to me and, you know, she's asking me about, like, my wife and my kids and whatnot. At the time, she wasn't married. She didn't have kids yet. And she was giving me a little tip. She's like, you know, when life is hard, you know what I do? I just take a spa day every Saturday. <laughs> and I think I was just staring at her, like, my eyes twitching. I'm like, what, what, what is spa day? <laughs> is that the day the kids do the chores? Like, what, what is that? <laughs> I don't know what this is. Or uh, some of our neighbors uh, over the years, you know, who are, who are not yet Christians, you know, and they'll give me lines like, well, since we don't go to religious services, you know, on, on Sundays, we have the time to make furniture by hand out of recycled materials and make artisan meals from scratch from the f- food we harvest from the ground on Sundays. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> I just bribed my kid to go to church this morning. <laughs> it's It's fine. <laughs> But some of you this morning might be able to say, well, at least you have a family. At least you have someone to come home to. Whatever circumstance you're in, whatever situation you're in, they are real and we feel the impact of them. And it's important that we grieve these things and process these difficulties and hardships in the right way because it is often at this point that many people are tempted like Asaph was in that moment to give up and maybe some of you are there you're like you know what forget it like I'm I'm done I'm done. I've been trying to follow the way of Jesus, trying to like do the whole thing and it just seems like it's getting harder. It seems like it's getting worse and some of you are like, I'm done. It's one thing to genuinely grieve hardship and disappointment and difficulty. Many of the Psalms, in fact, help us to do just that in the right way. But it is another thing to harden your heart out of self-pity and self-righteousness. And let's confess, friends, we all have a choice to do that. So please, please don't misunderstand. Circumstances can be difficult and hard and painful. And that's real. But in those moments, we've all been there. There's a difference between coming to God with your hand open grieving and lamenting or coming to God with your fist closed. We have a choice. And the warning here is against hardening ourselves and self-pity and in self-righteousness. And so I love Psalm 73 because it helps identify this in my own heart. And it can help you identify self-pity and self-righteousness in your own heart. In fact, there are two signs that you're operating out of self-pity and out of self-righteousness. One of them is that you magnify your righteousness. Right, that's what happens when you're like, what about me, what about me? Asaph insists that he has been pure. In vain I have kept myself pure and washed my hands in innocence. Because later on, he'll go on to confess. We'll get there in a moment. But in this moment, he has a magnified sense of righteousness, right? When you're in that self-pity place, it, everything's wrong with other people, but you, you're good. You're like, look at all these people. They probably don't even do what I do. As for me, like, I'm killing it. I'm doing all the right things. and Still, it's hard. See, that, that's one of the symptoms of this unhealthy self-focus is this magnification of your own righteousness. But there's a second sign. This one I find quite funny because it's probably defined my life too often. The second sign that you are operating out of self-pity and self-righteousness when other people are doing well and you are not is that you interpret all hardship as punishment. Didn't you get a kick out of that that line, you know, in verse 14? All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. (laughs) You know how, like, a lot of Christians over decades put, like, verses on coffee cups? You guys seen those, right? Like, I never saw this one on a coffee cup, but I was thinking this morning, that'd be a good one. Just get your little coffee cup, and you just got it right there, filling it up, a little bit of oat milk in there, and it just says, all day long, I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. (laughs) Because for some of us, that's how it feels in that place. What it means is you interpret all hardship as punishment. Didn't get the pay rise? God hates me. No parking on Labor Day weekend? God also hates me. <laughs> I'm going to confess, I jump to this conclusion the minute anything goes wrong. Flight's delayed? I'm like, how long, oh Lord? I I, I don't understand. Why are you punishing me? You would you interpret every hardship as punishment? When my kids get crazy, or they're hard, or they're difficult, or out of line, I'm just like in vain. I've tried to be a good parent, and yet these heathens just run rampant in my household. In vain, I have pointed them to the way of Jesus. I wash my hands in innocence. (laughs) Why am I being punished? See, it's important to identify this because it assumes that you are qualified to be in the judge's seat and that you have all the facts. But we don't. We need to identify that attitude of the heart and that story we are telling ourselves. That's why it's toxic and sinful, because it assumes that we know everything and that we're the ones sitting in the judge's seat. But then he does something interesting. He doesn't end there. He pauses. He felt all this. He thought all this, but he's glad that he didn't publicize it yet. Verse 15, he says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. That's interesting. He acknowledges that mere self-expression without some discipline and without some restraint will only infect other people. Really fascinating. He did not want the unfettered expression of his experience without restraint to harm the faith of other people. This is important for me. Maybe it is for you. But in the name of authenticity, I often give myself permission to say whatever I want without restraint and without filter. But do I? Have you Have we all ever stopped to wonder if this is the best and most healthy way to process things? Have we actually stopped and paused to to think maybe I need to process this first before I publicize it? Will this even be good for my soul if I don't? And will it be good for others? Because I talk a lot. And a lot of times I get myself into trouble. In fact, when I was pastoring at Reality Lay, there was this one sweet woman. She was an amazing uh, woman in our church, like a total intercessor. And she would pray, you know, with this prayer group over me every Sunday before we'd preach. But she always prayed this one prayer. And I always got like slightly offended when she did. They'd be like laying hands on me, like, Lord, don't let anything stupid come out of this man's mouth. And I was like, you know, hands open, I'm like, yes, Lord, yeah. And then there, I'm like, <laughs> like, why did she pray that? I mean, yeah, sure, you should pray that, but like, why? <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know if you have a life verse. Anyone have a life verse? I don't know. If I had one, I guess this should be it. Psalm 141, verse three, set a guard over my mouth, <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Keep watch over the door of my lips. It'd be good if I considered that verse. As I'm processing, as I'm thinking about what is the story I'm telling myself, how is it that I'm experiencing this circumstance or this situation, I need to stop and I need to pause and I need to do the hard work of questioning my narrative. Are you taking the time, even this morning, to stop and to do the hard work of questioning the story that you are telling yourself before you publicize it for the world. Or as I like to say to myself, God created a Save His Draft folder for a reason. Right? Okay, it's there, it's real, but I got to bring it to God. I got to do the hard work of questioning that. Because there may be times where the frustration of envy and and self-pity are a part of our experience. So this is true. This psalm gives us permission to identify that. Don't let it surprise you when envy and comparison and self-pity and self-righteousness are there. But don't let it control you. Do not let it control you. And here in the middle of the psalm, he recognizes that he's in a moment of temptation. And so an examination... Is in order. And I love this because the psalmist is not being dishonest, right? We're not saying, like, you know, hey everyone, if you're a follower of Jesus, just stuff all of your emotions and your experiences and just like be a robot. We're not saying that. He's not dishonest. Nor is he being naive. But something happens here as he stops and he pauses and he examines. There's a turning point. And I want you to notice this he did not take up his pen to write the first 14 verses until he had the truth of the last 14 verses. So what did he do? What was the result? How did he recover from the envy and the self-pity and the self-righteousness and the comparison? Well, he asked this third question. What about God? Where is he at in this? And what does he think of all this? That's what brought the change. In the midst of these agonizing thoughts, he found relief. Notice we don't know exactly what the answer was. It doesn't actually tell us. But we know where he got it. And it was in the house of God. Verse 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then... I understood their final destiny. Which is an interesting statement because it implies somewhere along the line he stopped going to the house of God. Or maybe that he hadn't been in a while. See, this what we might call spiritual disciplines, like praying and and reading and and joining together with, with men and women following Jesus, what we might call the spiritual disciplines, they're often the first things to go when hardship comes, when in reality they should be the first things we take up. We will all wrestle. We will all struggle with our hardships and difficulties, but will we do it in the presence of God? Do it in the presence of God. The answer came when he's engaged and it brought health to his heart and there's two ways in which it did. Note that this is the story of divine perspective. It was with this long range vision of divine justice that put Asaph back on his feet. For those who reject God, whatever security they think that they have in this world, it will disappear in a moment. It'll disappear in a moment. But he also looked at himself in light of the fact that God was judge. And he humbled himself. He confesses like, I was, I was arrogant. I was without awareness of God. He humbled himself before God. Because listen, it doesn't matter how you compare yourself to others when you're in the presence of God. Because his opinion is the opinion that matters most, amen? Says, oh wow, now I see everything with perspective. And when I do, like the prophet Isaiah, if you've ever read Isaiah, he's the prophet sent to Israel to correct them against turning away from the Lord, and he's like, woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you too. And then all of a sudden he has this vision, he's in the presence of God, and what does he say? Woe is me. Woe Woe to me, I am undone but it's not only the story of divine perspective, but lastly, it's the story of divine presence. That's what I want us to see before we enter into worship now. He refocused his heart and he understood in the house of God that God was with him and it is good for him to be near the Lord. He is with me, he says in this psalm. He holds me and he guides me See, earlier he said, why would I follow God? And now he's saying, why would I not follow God? He says, I was almost at the edge, but but God held me. And Asaph realized that God had been with him the whole time. And this changes the story. It keeps us from banking everything on the present circumstance. See, his perspective was too small. He realizes that is both the journey with God and the destination towards God that ultimately matters. And so he says in verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. Friends, I'd love for you to see the progression of pronouns in this psalm. The first section is dominated by the word they. The middle section of the psalm is dominated by the word me. But the last section of the psalm is dominated by the word you, O Lord. This should drive our story. It's an awareness of the presence of God that changes our perspective. And how did the psalmist get there? The sanctuary of God. And what did he see when he went into the sanctuary? He saw an altar. He saw a sacrifice. The innocent for the guilty. In other words, he remembered the reason that he could belong to God and the cost necessary for it. And when we see this, we see it when we look at Jesus. Because if there was ever a person who could have complained and said that they were truly innocent, it was Jesus because he was the perfectly sinless son of God. And yet he offered himself his life for the guilty, paid for our sins so that we could all know and experience the presence of God. Friends, the contentment we need, the assurance we need, the comfort, the perspective that we need comes from the story of the gospel. This is the story that we must tell ourselves when we face trial and difficulty and envy and self pity and comparison and self righteousness. And when we do, we remember the story of all that Jesus has done and that God has given us his Holy Spirit and that he guides us and he holds us. And we can remember with the psalmist and begin to tell a different story and say, I may be confused, I may be frustrated, I can't make sense of my situation, I don't understand why other people seem to have it better. But nevertheless, I am a child of God. I am beloved of God. It is better for me to be near to you and I will tell the world of your marvelous deeds. Amen. Let's pray together and let's ask that we all right now would experience the presence of God. And if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, now is your moment to do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, sacrificed his life for us on the cross and rose again because you put your Holy Spirit within us that we can experience your good wonderful healing guiding presence I pray right now for any man or woman in this room or joining online who does not yet know you. I pray that the reality of eternal judgment would sober them, but that it would point them to trust in you and what you have done for them in Jesus Christ to die and rise for them. And that right now they would say, Jesus, save me so that I do not need to fear the future, but have hope for future glory with you. Pray that they would just receive you, even right now, into their heart for the first time. And for us as a congregation, Father, I pray that you would heal any sinful, toxic stories that we are telling ourselves, even now, that you'd heal it with your presence that we would all say as we respond now in light of what you've done, in light of your sacrifice, it is good to be near God. I don't have all the answers, but I can come into the presence of the one who does. And I pray, God, that in your presence right now we would find healing and strength. Even in this moment, we ask in Jesus' name.